For some years I lived near a swimming hole. I would walk towards it purposefully on afternoons that were otherwise spent scribbling and studying. Sometimes I'd go barefoot, hopping along the hot asphalt streets so that once I got there I had no choice but to submerge myself immediately. I'd jump in with an awkward dive, push down and kick, then surface and splash around, dragging myself to the centre and floating, looking around at nothing in particular. Often I felt I could stay out there forever, as if the middle of that basin was the place that I most belonged. Eventually I would swim back to the rocks and sit on a warm boulder like it was a throne and that area my riparian kingdom. To leap into the river and wrestle with it. I actually think that this might have been the first habit I ever had that made me feel like an adult. Like I was independent. Like I was a man. Sometimes I went down at night. At first to honour a certain sense of solitude that was growing in me. And again I felt that this had some significance. In a sense it was an early expression of someone I was becoming. But there were times when I went there with mates at midnight. Pissed as nits. Laughing loudly and missing something of the solemnness of the river's nocturnal moods. And on other occasions I'd go there with just a single friend, one close cobber. And this was a special rite. Only someone who would appreciate the situation could be invited. There were certain obligations you had to fulfil, as with any ritual. For instance, you weren't allowed to test the water's temperature before you entered. You had to jump off the platform of a flat conglomerate of cement and native rock and straight into the deep. There could be no complaining or squealing about the water, whether for its temperature or the hidden creatures within it. You might lose your breath and have algae or eels wrap around your ankles, but it should still be born stoically. And naturally, it always needed to be done stark naked. I could fondly tell any number of tales of late night swims in the Cataract Gorge, in the final lengths of the South Esk River as it roves through Dolorite Cliffs and empties itself with a sigh into the Tamer Estuary. But today I remember keenly a certain night in early autumn, a reunion with a friend from whom I'd been separated for a while. She was sitting by the entrance to the pathway as I wandered down. Possums had congregated around a rubbish bin like it was a holy place, and the broad shape of a kookaburra cut through the starlight. My friend was crouched on the grass, but as I approached, she stretched her legs and adjusted her silhouette. Look at these wallabies, she said, gesturing towards a group of them scattered across the lawn. She had obviously been watching them for some time and made an observation as eloquently as David Attenborough might. Look at them, shitting their asses off. <laughs> this was around the time that I'd learned to hear that the Australian accent sounded as peculiarly beautiful as the smell of crushed gum leaves. 
My friend's hair was stringy and red. It had been dyed and not well cared for. On the nape of her neck it was matted. She was wearing loose black clothes as always, warm and practical, unlike her piercings. Was that a golf tee in her ear? And something else, a peg or a crystal fixed to her lip? It amuses me now that I can remember the date and the hour that this all happened, but I can't remember what objects she had stuck through which parts of her face. But I guess it simply didn't matter. Just like it didn't matter that her hair was greasy, or that her teeth were crooked, or that she carried an aura of nicotine around with her. As far as I was concerned, she was perfect. The night shimmered with the knowledge that much had passed between us since our last rendezvous. And we were, as always, animated by the allure of the river. It was the spirit of mystery and of having some sense of being equal to that mystery if only because we were young and so still able to believe that we would determine our own destinies. Belief is power. Youth is a force as strong as any westerly. We weren't prepared to waste either although they both would dissipate over time. Only a chill breeze was resting on the river's banks when we got there. Already there was dew. My friend pulled a thermos of weak chai from her backpack and set it on the rock with a quiet clang, preemptively apologising for how tepid it would be. Small talk. Because I didn't know what needed to be said, and she didn't know how to say it. So we snagged on details instead. Precisely what I can't say now. Those things go missing in memory. They get washed out, leached away, unrecorded. Whatever you reckoned then would either have to sink into your heart or it would flake off in the river. In time. Come tomorrow. So we sipped at hot, flavourless tea. The spices still smelt strong in the still and empty air, even if they didn't have much taste. Our bellies, lips and throats were warm against the onset of night's cold. And then the thermos was empty. So we nodded to each other and began to disrobe. All of a sudden we were pale, smooth figures nude beneath the spread out stars and a battered moon. Whatever acne scars and birthmarks, wounds or bruises we bore, they'd all disappeared. I'm sure we both subtly scanned each other's bodies, as always, with quickly moving eyes, and we both concluded without a word that we were in beautiful company. She was rounded and calm and unspeakably soft. I breathed in deeply and filled myself out, all oxygen and bones. As I said, we were young. The variability of bodies was still fairly new to us. And nothing seemed a more exquisite expression of how splendid were the many shapes and textures we might encounter in existence. My friend suggested that we run around a bit to warm up. 
This was not a standard preamble to the swim, but nevertheless we sprinted out onto the grass and terrified the wallabies, who stopped shitting and bolted into the scrub. A distant aeroplane was coming towards us like an agonisingly slow, white-hot rocket. I did a cartwheel, and it was maybe the most absurd thing I had ever done with my body. All the bits dangling around and dancing. A comic act for an audience of one. And then we jogged back to the river a little out of breath, slightly warmer, and still as white as the moonlight, and made of the same silk as well. And before we even got our natural respiratory functions back, she said it. I'm going back there. It wasn't a surprise. It couldn't be a surprise. I'd encouraged her to do it. And so there was no need for an answer. I swiveled on my ankles and leaped wildly into the water. And she followed close behind me. Sometimes I think the phrase skinny dip is the most beautiful phrase in the English language. The South Esk, just so you know, is the longest river in Tasmania, squirming down from the northeast high country in an improbable route towards Launceston. At its lower reaches, it runs through tall cliffs of warm brown dolerite. This dramatic landscape is the setting for so many of my memories. I've been fortunate enough to spend a good many years living in various houses in close proximity to the Cataract Gorge and I've passed some of my best hours in this place, in some of the most crucial times of my life. I am not alone in my love for the gorge. Partly what makes it such a special place is that it belongs to everyone in Launceston. It's free to enter, and anyone can find their patch on the lawn or the rocks, even in the busiest summer days. I used to meet with an eclectic crew of mates every afternoon at 5pm for a swim. It was the most important social engagement of my life, to wander down and find Danny and Flo, Barb, Tim, Don and Rowena, Craig and anyone else who might be stationed on the same rocky outcrop ready to dive into the deep. For many of us, the gorge figured as a kind of a place of initiation, a watery platform in an amphitheatre where the top rows were taken up by casuarinas and eucalypts. One stratum up, you could find an audience that watched in a different way. Wedge-tailed eagles, for example, etching invisible figures, solar and lunar as they sought what might be hunted. Eagles. Clubs of cockatoos who sauntered above, noisier than aeroplanes, 
swans and coots and seagulls, creatures of the realms of both air and water. The more furtive fairy wrens and thornbills, skinks and mice poking in the dirt. A bloody lovely mob. Most conspicuous, of course, are the peacocks, hooting louder and more obnoxiously than any teenage reveller and worse dressed than even I have been in my unfashionable past. All these birds and other critters must have their own view of us, and I'm forever frustrated that I can't see our species as they do. Although for those trying to replicate it, there is a chairlift strung across the span of the first basin. It's the longest single-span chairlift in the world, or so goes the advert's desperate boast by the front gate. It swoops low like a plover. And I admit that I have sometimes wondered how us locals look to the tourists who chug along it while we disport ourselves beneath. Every so often, someone comes along who wants to build something more elaborate. And by that I mean ugly. As if the grandeur of this place's geology and the immersive experience of a swim in the river isn't magnificent enough. To those presumptuous people, I say, open your bloody eyes. You'd be better off to be Alphonse Bugler, a German circus performer who tight-roped across the chairlift's cables from one side of the gorge to the other 20 years ago. It's a true story. I learned that one from Tim. The point is that visitors anywhere should find their own unusual adventures in places like these, especially one as beautiful and interesting as the gorge, where lives of all kinds intersect and occur in the public realm. The incongruous electric blue of the swimming pool is often a buzz with activity. Yes, there's a swimming pool. Right next to the river's first basin, which has deeper and darker water yet, its large, open span of murk and shadow absorbing some of the noise of a summer's day. When the sun rips through the meniscus and fills the uppermost metre or so, you'll hear swimmers turn to poetry, trying to describe the colour of the water they've just submerged themselves in. Dirty jade, they say. Translucent turquoise, or brackish gold, or mushy emerald. It's no surprise when someone starts to say it's amber-coloured and then clarifies it. It's the colour of Bogue's red, the local ale. Launceston is a town full of poets, burrowed in a beautiful depression where three rivers meet. Winter fogs smother the valley, put the poets into hibernation, push their hopes underground for a while. But we all dream of elsewhere, yet most feel a pull back to the hills. To gravity that can't be ignored. Whatever its colour, the water swallows whole those swimmers who leap from the jumbled rocks on the banks. Particularly one called Hog's Rock. A plinth several metres high from which you'll see human figures hurling themselves repeatedly on the hot summer days like lively lemmings slapping the soles of their feet onto the water in the split second before it breaks and takes them into the depths. I say depths. We all believed when we were young that the first basin was immeasurable, that the bottom would never be found. But the local newspaper some years ago reported on its front page that it had been sounded out at 19 metres at its deepest point. It still has its mysteries. 
especially if you come late at night. We know that the dark waters conceal unknown things. Each slight current could be an eel or a fish or something worse. Seals are frequent visitors after all. What else might come from the sea, migrating into our swimming hole? The headlines of the examiner can't take that mystique away from us. Now I remember Barb Hatley interviewing a bunch of us about how we connected to the Cataract Gorge, the way she might have interviewed some gamelan player or Javanese street performer on one of her academic forays to Indonesia back in the day. We each met this section of the river on different terms, and you could tell that by the way we all swam differently. Once we finally jumped in, that is, after all the gossip had been completed and the day's political questions had been unpacked. We'd usually jump in separately, without announcement, and take off on our own routes across the basin. The one real athlete in our midst would do laps, having greased up his impressive body, honing it against the river's current. The council member and his skimpy jocks would leap in, desperately as if trying to cool himself off after raising his temperature repeating political gossip. I meandered out into the middle, with slow, ineffective strokes, and then I rolled myself onto my back and looked up and around making a slow panorama of wonder. But Barb was always the first to swim every season in September, always one of the last to finish up when the water was getting colder. At the moment, she's stuck in Melbourne and probably going mad. Once I found one of her anthropological texts in a second-hand bookshop in Ubud. Perhaps it was her influence that helped me picture what this place must seem like for an outsider or if you had a different way of imagining the human situation in the world. Briefly, I caught a glimpse of us as we'd be seen by some ethnographer, if we were a culture in a distant land, or some time in the past. You'd have to say that we took the gorge as sacred. I don't remember which of us said it, but I'm quite sure that one afternoon, towards the end of our gossip session, one of us quietly surveyed the blue waters inside, Yes, this is the navel of the world.
two rivers with the name Esk begin alongside a mountain called Ben Lomond. Those rivers may be sisters, but they're not twins. They run correspondingly through misty forests and out into the farmlands, wandering off through various towns, nourishing every creature within their catchments, then reuniting again at Launceston, emptying a few kilometres apart into the big estuary to the north, a river known as the Tamar or Kanamaluka. But despite the similarities, I reckon the north and south Esk rivers have distinctly different personalities, if I might put it like that. Sometimes there is a flood. The flood reminds us that these rivers travel, that their origins are out of sight, that their waters arrive on journeys. Sometimes in winter or in spring, big rains will hit the northeast of Tasmania, pouring on top of the Dolorite Massif of Ben Lomond, sluicing through gullies down its flanks, each tiny runnel a tribute to the major rivers that meet in Launceston. The North Esk is much shorter, and its floodwaters arrive more quickly. It's a couple of days before the bulk of the rainfall in the South Esk reaches its destination. By then the river has wrestled its way down its meandering corridor, stained with stolen soil and streaked with off-white foam, the colour of its fury. It rebels against a dam wall just upstream and roars into the first basin. There is a great crest of water under the suspension bridge. You wait for it some day to be washed away. Or perhaps the water will climb up and tear down that chairlift. Meanwhile, whole trees are hurled across our swimming arena, the lawns and the pools submerged like pathetic Atlantean relics. That is just one aspect of the place, though. One rare mood of the river's many. Then there is the evening hour, which the French call between the dog and the wolf. We might say between the bandicoot and the paddy melon. It's a time of subtleties, especially on still evenings in summer and autumn, when the light throws up false shadows, when ghosts might appear or metamorphoses occur. A branch turns into a heron. A peacock reverts to driftwood. Invisible wallabies dash off into the scrub holes, known only by the sinewy snap of their tails on earth. Anonymous presences continue splashing on the darkening water. And now no gorge-swimming poet could describe the colours. The sky a pale peach, sallow orange, a pink with almost all the colour drained from it. The moon makes an early move and goes swinging through on an unusual trajectory. A big flying disc, lugubrious and silent over the possum-shaken woods. Actually, it's really the hour of the possums. The possums above all. The peacocks will still emit a honk, a hoot, an esoteric call, but there is nothing like the cacophony of the chorus of a posse of possums once they've taken up their positions around the forest staked out their claim on the large tracts of land around them. They are walking like illusionists vertically up tree trunks. They are waddling across the lawns with wiggling derrieres, their fuzzy black tails making wild shadows behind them. They are perched on handrails, they are seated around cafe tables, they are in rubbish bins. 
there is a great possum theatre happening and it is incomprehensible to us. One summer evening I heard a possum snickering nearby and looked up to see it walking along a fence with the foil wrapper of a biscuit packet entirely over its head. Yet it marched on, determined, like a blinded bushranger, an anamorph Ned Kelly, or a marsupial socialite on its way to a masquerade ball. I once commissioned myself to spend 24 hours straight in the grounds of the Cataract Gorge. No great feat, no endurance record, but simply something I'd never done before. I wandered around until everyone had gone home. The yoga practitioners down on the lawn, the father repeatedly hurling his daughter headfirst into the pool, the teenagers smoking in the barbecue area. And then I clambered up to a ridge where I liked to pitch my tent on the casuarina needles. I sheltered myself in the mesh shell against the sneeping mosquitoes, although I inadvertently ushered in a different insect intruder who, like a tick or a hitchhiker, had burrowed into the fleece of my track pants and then proceeded to sting me over and over on the inside of my thigh. A jack jumper. I always have vivid dreams in that place. Sometimes when I've gone to a pub rendezvous suspecting I'll become too drunk to drive, I've simply parked my car at the entry to the gorge and later walked back, collected an old sleeping bag from my boot and opted to sleep under the stars and the trees. It feels like my private place, although I have no doubt that others have found the same spot at one point or another. Still, I've never been imposed upon apart from by that jack jumper, nor even seen another human from my campsite. Coming down from the ridge, I often come upon a certain homeless man. You often cross paths with him in the early morning, when he's wandering back from town, bearing shopping bags bulging with unknown items. He's a tall man, and he marches purposefully, thin blonde hair pushed back, looking like a pro wrestler from the early 90s, like Lex Luger or Mr. Perfect. In the mornings, everyone smiles and nods and g'days their way through the windy footpaths above the river, even the joggers. But not this bloke. Stoic and laconic, he strides past without acknowledging your existence. I've seen faint pads up rough slopes around there, and I reckon that they're his. I assume I'll never know the course of his life story, but if what he is seeking is secret paths to private places then I am not unsympathetic. And if nothing else, I believe that the people of Launceston are fortunate to have a forest at its edges where those of us who need solitude and respite have been able to retreat over the years. And I think it's no contradiction or surprise that such a space also forms the basis of a most democratic and diverse social life as well.
When I was a younger man, I invented a kind of very silly spiritual story to explain this place. Something entirely made up, but in a style pilfered from indigenous myths. Perhaps exposing the fact that I sensed I was missing that matrix of background stories that might explain where I was and why it had come to matter to me so much. Because the river was lit with magic. And you could see that from whatever distance. Whichever sort of eyes you watched it with. There were memories in its gentle movements. The surface shifted with a slight lilt, like a song of simple confidence. The paths never led directly to the water. They turned into multiple tracks, and each wandered through native grasses, over eucalyptus roots or upon rocky outcrops. But in the end, all ways naturally found the river's banks. Yet to best enter the water, you would dive off a small platform of rock. It was once an altar of unhewn stone, where our predecessors, if not our ancestors, came to make sacrifices of a sort. But that was long ago, when a person made different guesses at their place in the universe, though all of us still grope as blindly at interaction with a deeper meaning. Whatever the reason, it felt good to stand on that altar and look at the river. The water absorbed the light and reconstituted it so that it was restful for the eyes and the mind. This was helpful because sometimes the sun was so heavy that it would fall onto the world and penetrate into your brain and make your head feel like it was going to burst. Now the river mouth was holy for many creatures. Black cockatoos of a royal line, for instance, would come to the pines and casuarinas around the river at a certain time every year when their nuts and cones reached a level of ripeness that only parrots could intuit. They would come from a long way away to crack into them and feast. The air would fill with the chatter of a family reunion. But not only that, it was a pilgrimage in honour of a deity they believed in who had watched over their forebears and assured them a measure of prosperity for as long as they continued the rituals of the feast at the river mouth. There were whip snakes that writhed around through the shrubs, between the white trees, in the crevices of the cliff faces. You could only see them if you stayed still for a long time, and if you hummed certain summoning incantations. The butterflies licked at the soft and sweet faces of wildflowers. Gnats dipped in and out of the scum of protein at the edges of the river's mouth. There were dragonflies, and if you studied them closely, it would be easy to imagine that their wings were multiplying, and that they were the product of a capricious creator who was clumsy with his fingers or couldn't count or could not control her fertility, her prolific creative powers and the dragonflies appeared to be studying the smaller insects, as if they were thinking the same things. There were other omens, of what we don't know. Sometimes flocks of birds would arise suddenly from the cliffs at dusk. It looked like the slow explosion of a dark planet, that maybe later would rebuild itself on another orbit. And in the dawn... 
The reaching rays of the sun would climb over the mountains and light up the clouds. The clouds appeared as gold script writ large. And if I couldn't read it, I didn't mind. Surely someone else could. And so the story would be told. Eventually it would all be remembered. In the evening the stars swelled and dripped white light onto the surface of the water. It was as though the sky was a black canopy with holes punched in it so that we could see eternity. And eternity was hot and distant and blinding, heaven's coalition with hell. Some nights there were no stars. On those nights we made paper boats and threw them from the bridge so that the owls would not be confused by the pure darkness of the waters while they tried to navigate their way around the obscurity of the night. With all this absolute nonsense in my head, I would go down to the gorge on the eve of summer and carve a list onto a log of driftwood, a catalogue of all the shitty things I'd done, all the things that had been done to me an ephemeral memoir that I carved into timber and then set on fire, and then let the fire dissolve these errors and sorrows into ash, and the ash subsequently dissipate into the air. I saw them all carried away from me, and smeared the charcoal that remained on my forehead, and then swam into the deep and let the water wash that away. It was one way of letting go. And out there, with nothing else to do, I began to invent stories for the peacocks. They were pilgrims from Persia. And we could never account for why they were there, because they didn't learn to speak our language to tell us, and we couldn't interpret their hoots and hollers. Yet we learned much from them, as they swaggered through our paradise. We discovered that to be beautiful demanded devotion and that it could be a lonely experience to be beautiful as well. Now that I think about it, later on I'd meet charming backpackers down by the river, and this was a comparable encounter. They were beautiful strangers too. And although us locals were not quite able to reproduce their colours, or often speak their language, there was always something to learn from them, and even more wonderfully, we occasionally had something to give. I also came up with a yarn as a background for the lone seal that would sometimes travel up the river's mouth, who came with a searching gaze but would never speak to anyone. I assumed that he had lost something. A lover, or a parent, or a sister, or a brother. He would search amongst the brown rocks thoroughly and slowly but without any optimism in his dark and feminine eyes. In doing so, he had become lost himself, perhaps in a different sort of way. But so such cycles continue, and I guess in those days I had many friends whose experience was much the same. There was one last ludicrous little story I allowed myself to top it all off. It was about a novice monk who was apprenticed to the river. His daily task was to try and practice happiness He wasn't a natural talent. But every day he would stand on that altar of undressed stone and raise his head to the horizon as if the skies were pulling his spine straight for him.
and whatever the skies were like, he would salute them. He was a young man, not particularly handsome, with a tawdry, tawny-coloured beard that he was trying to grow. His lips remained still, something he'd just learned how to do, to make himself seem like he had a bit of grace. Then he would plunge into the river, baptising himself daily in the dark waters, pursuing the bottom of the river to such depths that algae went up his nose and his body was squeezed by the heavy pressure and he felt himself full of clamouring stars. He sometimes saw hints of another world beneath. He could hear rumours and rumblings of hope. When his limbs pushed through the water hard enough, he could feel the sound waves of an underwater city vibrating away beneath the surface and on the far side of the world. But he knew his limitations and obeyed them. For now, he would have to come back from that mystery and return, crashing upwards through the meniscus of the water into the world of ordinary things above the river's surface. So he would emerge, gasping for oxygen, dripping wildly. Hoisting himself from the river and onto the rocks, he saw his chest had been sculpted by the water. Looking out on the river, he saw a reflection so warped that he thought he might be beautiful. And when he walked away, you could see that he was a little different that day by day he was carrying himself with a bit more satisfaction. Perhaps, like peoples have believed for however many millennia, there are places on this planet where we may access a sort of knowledge of the spirit, where humans may connect with gods or whatever lives beyond our general comprehension. Or perhaps it's simply that our own personal histories permanently mark the specific positions at which we were most affected by the turbulence of the world, by the small but powerful events of our own lives. I think the first time I came to that spot on the ridge, I needed to make a big decision. The decision was to leave Launceston for an indefinite period, 
to go towards other horizons, stranger ones, to see sunsets that fell upon foreign landscapes, watch rivers that circulated waters by other techniques, and witness how other mobs made the world around them. I was in my early twenties. I traipsed up to the highest outcrop there, looked over the snaking South Esk, stomped my feet in the leaf litter, tried to connect with the Dolorites in eight presence. I was a mystic attempting to make a conduit through which the enormity of the skies might pass, albeit for one insignificant, inevitable decision. Because I was always going to leave. Fold up my swag and wander off. As I have on so many mornings since then. Watching the rock take on voodoo colours in the sun's rays. Or submitting to the mizzle as it obscures the details of the hills. Presses opaque clouds between the treetops. I had to leave. And yet, without a doubt, I would find my way back there as well. I'd begun daydreaming about the return before I'd even departed. The path would lead again to the big ugly block where a diving board once stood. I'd still leap in unevenly, like I'd been made skew-whiff. I'd push out into the open water, that aperture in the forest, exposed between the trees and the stars. All my splashing, all my movement, my efforts to stay afloat seeming rather meaningless, like the very archetype of meaninglessness. And yet, last summer, I think it was Christmas Eve, I wandered around Launceston with no real agenda and wound up on the green lawns by the river basin, of course, reading a book, of course. There was a gentle spread of heat occasionally ameliorated by threads of wind from upstream. The water was simply blue, no need for overwrought similes, blue with white stars at the edges. There was a simple jumble of happy sounds all around me, a general burble punctuated with the kaplunk of various bodies dunking themselves into the drink. I kept the curious cohort of strangers at the peripheries of my vision, eavesdropped sentences or looked up at sudden movements, allowing myself to be distracted from whatever passage I was meant to be reading. There was a woman with a tattoo on her tricep, the figure of a goddess holding what was either the world or a possum, (laughs) and a burly bozo who approached two Spanish-speaking tourists sitting on the grass with the most atrocious pickup line I've ever heard. Didn't you bring a towel? (laughs) And I looked up at one point and saw Danny and Flo sitting on the rocks where we have always sat, where we've always found ourselves on summer days. And then Don glided up to us with his eyes just over the waterline, grinning like a cheeky crocodile. And Danny asked, Do you reckon our ghosts will just sit here on these same rocks throughout summer forever? And I thought, It's funny you should say that, mate. Because that is absolutely something I could find myself believing. (laughs) 